medical cynicism. A proverb. Doctors have two enemies, the dead and the healthy. In every culture there are groups of people who, through their professional tasks, are led to develop various realisms in their dealing with dying or dead bodies. The soldier, the executioner, the priest. In medical practice, however, the most thorough realism of death is constructed. A consciousness of death that, technically more intimate than any other, knows of the body's fragility and reveals the death-oriented course of our organism, no matter whether it is called health, sickness or ageing. Only the butcher possesses a comparable and similarly craftsmanlike knowledge, anchored in routines, of the material side of our death. Medical materialism is able to intimidate even philosophical materialism. The corpse would be thus the properly qualified teacher of an integral materialism. To keep pace as a layperson with the medical realism of death, one would have to stock up on a large ration of sarcasm, black humour and romantic mischievousness, and not shrink back from a philosophical view of the corpse. To expose oneself with open nerve endings to the impact of a post-mortem, only that can provide the experience of naked death. The anatomical gaze, more cynical than any other, knows a second nakedness of our body. When on the surgeon's operating table, the exposed organs present themselves in an ultimate shameless nakedness. The corpse, too, has long known the titillation of putting on a show. Exhibition of corpses, nudism of death, existential night plays in the Colossian manner. An archaic desire to look, suffused by horror, is directed at the corpse, as earlier executions demonstrate as do public burnings, the mortuary romanticism of long ago, and the lying in state of political cadavers. Part of today's crisis in medicine comes from the fact that, and the way that, it has surrendered its once functional connection with the priesthood, and since then entered into a convoluted, ambivalent relationship with death. In the struggle between life and death, priests and doctors are now in opposing camps. Only the priest, without becoming cynical, can take the side of death with a clinically free perspective on reality, because in living religions and cosmologies, death is held to be the self-evident price for life, and one phase in the grand designs with which the knowledge of priests once knew itself to be conspiratorially, etymologically breathing together, connected the grand designs with which the knowledge of priests once knew itself to be conspiratorially connected. Etymology of the word conspiratory. Breathing together. Mortality in general must embarrass the priest just a little as the individual fight against death in particular. In both, a facticity of a higher type is effective in which our will plays no part. For the doctor, things are different. Doctors define themselves through having to take the side of life. All of medical idealism derives from this unconditional partiality. It is this idealism that even today 
down to the most cynical twists, guides the absurd struggles of medicine for the life of moribund bodies, long since decayed. The doctor takes the side of the living body against the corpse, because living bodies are the source of all power. The body's helper is a man of power. To this extent, the helper himself becomes a kind of wielder of power, since he gains a share of the central authority of all hegemonic powers, the power over the life and death of others. Thus the Doctor comes into a mediating position. On the one hand, an absolute supporter of life. On the other, a partaker in the power of hegemonic powers over life. Herewith, the stage is set for the appearance of medical cynicism. Sure, why shouldn't medical students bowl in the corridor of the anatomical institute with skulls? We were not particularly upset when our biology teacher brought a skeleton into the classroom for demonstration purposes, let its jaw snap, and explained that it had only been a criminal anyway. I wish the whole of medical cynicism, like these examples, could be treated under the rubric of black humour. But because medicine, for the most part, participates in the exercise of power, and because power in a philosophical respect can be defined by its virtual lack of humour, there is nothing humorous about medicine and its cynical tendency. All power proceeds from the body, it was said earlier. How does this apply to medical power? There are three possible answers to this question. 1. Doctors' work is based on their alliance with the natural tendencies of life towards self-integration and the avoidance of pain. Two allies aid them in this, the will to live and artificial medical means. Physicians who know how to use both can regard themselves as competent helpers. Medical power is legitimated and confirmed in the effectiveness of vital suggestion, whatever, they, whatever that may mean, and in practical measures for treatment, medicaments, surgery, dietetics. Healthy societies will be reorganised above all by the way in which they remunerate their helpers and integrate them into the social framework. One of the most profound ideas of traditional Chinese village medicine was the custom of paying the helper as long as one was healthy and of stopping payment when one became sick. This institution cleverly hindered the splitting of the power of the pa from the state from the vital interests of the communities. For us it is especially significant that the Chinese example represents a folk medicine tradition. For it is this that, in medical matters, embodies what we called in the other domains of values the clinical impulse. Here, the art of helping remains under the control of a communal consciousness that, for its part, commands the art of dealing with the, med with the helper's power. Above it, however, stretches an old line of master's medicine that always knew how to escape the control of remuneration from below. It always preferred payment in the case of sickness, and thus created for itself a powerful lever for extortions. Of course, there is also a productive perspective in this. The freedom of medicine, where such freedom exists, is based not least of all on the economic autarky of the doctors, which they know how to protect through their demands for fees. To this extent, there is a parallel between Greek medicine and Roman law, namely, 
the principal, or private consultation and payment, for each use, which is supported by the idea of a contract for treatment. 2. The will to live, an important agent in any healing, feels threatened by self-doubt in the case of serious illnesses. Where the tendency towards life grapples with that toward death, sick persons need an ally in whose unconditional pact with life they can believe. Patients thus project the self-healing powers of their bodies onto the doctor, who knows better how to stimulate and strengthen these powers than the patients alone in their debility and anxiety could do. In a crisis, patients who can believe in their own will to live, concentrated in the helper, have a decisive advantage over the person who is left alone, and who thus wrestles simultaneously with sickness and doubt. In this drama, sick persons who can trust place all of their own strength in the hands of the one who is helping them. Perhaps this way of looking at things sheds light on the quite amazing successes of old magical medicine, e.g. shamanism. In the magic healing ritual, the shaman extracts the evil from the sick body, perhaps in the form of a skillfully placed foreign body, a worm, a larvae, a needle. In cases in which the ritual was successful, such extractions often performed at the height of a crisis formed the turning point at which the self-healing process began to take over. To a certain extent, the extractions were enactments of the inner dynamic drama. Up to the present day, doctors draw their magical status from such and similar mechanisms. Insofar as demoralisation and cynical body technocracy are not readily apparent in them, which, by the way, is happening more and more, wanting to completely take such magic functions away from doctors would mean to dump the prevailing system of medicine. That there are good grounds for such radical demands is a common trope topic in medicine. That there are good grounds for such radical demands is a common topic in magazine articles. For the less credibly the pact with life and the healing magical motive is embodied by today's doctors, the stronger will be the incentive to reflect and to seek ways of self-help. Once they know how the suggestive part of healing functions, then gradually the time becomes ripe for patients to draw the outwardly directed projections of the will to live, projections of the will to live back into themselves. A broad field of alternative help will open up here. Three. The power of physicians reached its apex through royal bodies. If the king fell ill, then for a time the physician ruled de facto over the body of power. The ability to cure princes raised the art of healing for the first time completely to the level of master's medicine. The ruling medicine is thus the medicine of the rulers. Those who heal the powerful themselves become central bearers of power. In old theocracies and priest-controlled dominions, this connection was still direct by virtue of the personal unity of ruler and healer. Later, the healer was differentiated from the priest, and this precisely, to the extent that the art of healing developed into an art with a technical core of experience that could be distinguished from magical manipulation. The German word, Erzt, doctor, comes to, uh, according to 
Duden, translator's note, the authoritative German language reference book, comes from the adoption of the Greek word for the ruling medico, archiatros, the chief doctor. There was the title of court physicians of ancient princes, first established for the Seleucids of Antioch. The word came to the Frankish Merovingians through Roman doctors. From the monarch's courts, the title then went over to the physicians of spiritual and temporal dignitaries and became the general name for the profession of old High German times. Significant in this word migration is, above all, that the title doctor, Arzt, suppressed an older name for the, healy, uh, for the healer, namely Lachi, which means roughly the conjurer. The change of words signifies a change in praxis. The quasi-rational master's medicine began to suppress the magical folk medicine. The statement in Duden that Arzt was never really used by the folk can give cause for reflection. The word doctor, doctor, however, has been in common use since the 15th century. The doctor, as the learned exorciser of sickness, to the present day is more likely to gain trust than the archiator, the master's medico. There is, in fact, a kind of medicine that has always been recognised as a dubious shadow of power. Medical kinicism begins at that moment when the helper, as supporter of life, uses his knowledge of the body and of death frivolously and realistically against the delusions of sick people and the powerful. Often the doctor is dealing not with a fateful suffering, but with the consequence of unawareness, carelessness, arrogance, idiocy with the body, stupidity, or an unhealthy lifestyle. Against evil of this kind, the clinical medico's intimacy with death can serve him as a useful weapon. This is portrayed nowhere more splendidly than in Johann Peter Hebel's De, De Geheitel Patient, The Healed Patient. A clever doctor had given advice to a rich, overstuffed citizen of Amsterdam that, in its clinical coarseness, left nothing to be desired. Because rich people have to endure diseases that, God be praised, the poor man does not know of, this doctor thought up a particular form of therapy. Wait, I soon will have cured you. So he wrote the patient the following exemplary letter. And this is a quote from Johann Peter Hebel's Das Schatzkätzlein des Rheinischen Hausfreundes, second edition from Munich, 1979, page 153. Good friend, you are in bad shape, but you can still be helped if you want to follow. You have a nasty animal in your belly, a dragon with seven mouths. I have to speak with the dragon itself, and you must come to me. But you are not to drive or to ride a pony. Come instead on the shoemaker's mare. Otherwise you will shake the dragon and it will bite off your intestines. Seven intestines completely ruined in one stroke. Second, you are not to eat more than twice daily. A plate full of vegetables. At lunch you can have a breakfast with it. 
at night an egg and in the morning a cup of bouillon with chives sprinkled on top. What you eat in excess of this will only make the dragon larger so that it will squash your liver and the tailor won't have to measure you any more, but the carpenter will. And this is my advice and if you don't follow it you will not hear the cuckoos sing next spring. Do what you like. What modern doctor would dare speak to his civilised patients in this way? And how many patients are put into the situation of having to admit on the day of a consultation, I could not have picked a more inopportune time to become healthy than now when I'm supposed to go to the doctor, if only my ears would ring or I would bleed someplace. And what doctor today when he asks the patient what is wrong gets an answer like, Doctor, God be praised, there's nothing wrong with me, and if you are healthy as I am, then I'll be glad. The extent to which Hebel's sarcastic story closely follows a folk medicine way of thinking is revealed also by its conclusion, which says that the rich stranger lived 87 years, 4 months, 10 days, as healthy as a fish in water, and every new year sent the doctor 20 doubloons as a greeting. The sick fee has become the New, York, the New Year's greeting of a healthy person. Could there be a better indication of that other, other helping in which the healers are rewarded for doing their bit so that the fellow human beings do not get sick in the first place? To today's popular realism, in spite of science, in spite of research, in spite of grand surgery, doctors appear only as questionable supporters of life. And one sees all too often, too easily they can change over to the side of sickness. For a long time it has been a distinguishing feature of master's medicine that it is interested more in the sicknesses than in the sick person. It is inclined to establish itself smugly in a universe of pathology and therapy. Medicine's clinical ways of its medicine's clinical way of living increasingly robs doctors of an orientation toward health and destroys the roots of healer consciousness in a life-affirming realism that would really rather have nothing at all to do with medicine. Doctors like the one in Hebel's story belong to a dying species. Doctors who show the candidate for sickness how superfluous medicine is for people who suffer not from a disease but from the inability to be healthy. It used to be said that the best doctors were often those who wanted to be something else, such as a musician, writer, captain, pastor, philosopher or vagabond. It was still understood that those who know everything about sicknesses do not necessarily know anything about the medical art. The inclination to help willingly is as human and joyful as it is joyless and suspect when the helping bears some relation to evils that arise from self-destructive tendencies in civilization. A doctor will be all too easily pushed into the camp of master's cynicism when, like the great Dr. Heob Praetorius of Kurt Goetz, he is no longer allowed to oppose self-destructive stupidities that frequently underlie the sick, raw material. The more sicknesses are produced by the political relations and civilization, indeed even by medicine itself, the more medical praxis in our society is caught up in the twists and turns of a higher cynicism that knows that it itself furthers with the right hand the evil for which, whose cure it takes in money with the left. If doctors, 
as learned supporters of life, really saw their task in hindering sicknesses at their source instead of accommodating themselves to them parasitically and in effect helpingly. They would have to open up for candid discussion again and again their relation to and use of power. Today a medicine that radically insisted on its pact with the will to life would have to become the scientific core of a general theory of survival. It would have to formulate a political dietetics that decisively intervenes in the social relations of labour and life. However, in general, medicine lurches ahead in a cynical short-sightedness and interprets its pact with the will to live in such a dubious way that only from case to case could one specify the position in the clinical-cynical spectrum to which it relates. Is it the cynicism of simplicity, as practised by the good parson, Kneipp? Is it the cynicism of complicatedness, as started recently by Professor Barnard with his heart transplants? Is it the cynicism of a medical resistance that refuses to collaborate with self-destructive institutions and mentalities? Is it the cynicism of a medical collaboration that gives the causes a free hand in order to profit from the effects? A cynicism of the simple life, or a cynicism of the comfortable death? A cynicism that healingly pits the threatening certainties of death against unawareness, self-destruction and ignorance? Or a cynicism that collaborates with the repression of death, which is constitutive for the system in over-militarised and overstuffed societies? Because doctors must protect their hearts from the many hardships of the profession, popular reason has always granted them a bit of cynical coarseness that it would never have tolerated in others. The people recognised its real allies and those who possessed enough heart to hide it behind black humour and coarse manners. Medical jokes, more cynical than any other kind, has always had an accepting audience of lay people who, on the basis of the strong cynicism of their helpers, could convince themselves of the latter's good intentions. Icy coldness surrounds the medicine that no longer knows any jokes and has completely congealed into the exercise of its own and delegated power. There is a medicine that is nothing more than archaeotry, the realm of chief doctors, as was the case for all battered masters' mentalities striving for disinhibition. The hour for this medical cynicism arrived when fascism came to power. The latter created the scenario in which all those unperpetrated brutalities could emerge with which repressively civilised society is laden. Just as there was an older, camouflaged, cynical community of interests between the execution of punishment, which left a trail of corpses behind it, and scientific anatomy, which is notoriously hungry for corpses, so there was a community of interests between medical masters' cynicism and fascist racism that at last allowed it to satisfy its hunger for corpses on its own. Those who have the nerve should read the protocols of the Nuremberg trials in which the crimes of German medical fascism against humanity were heard. I do not choose this expression lightly. The phrase, medical fascism, does not come from a critical whim, but encapsulates a phenomenon as pregnantly as possible, 
what was swept to power in medicine at camps and universities between 1933 and 1945 reveals not the accidental straying of individual doctors to Nazi ideology, but rather an odd master's medical tendency, which was encouraged by fascism to reveal itself. This tendency had always found that there was too many people whose treatment was not really worth the trouble, and who were just good, just good enough to become experimental objects. Alexander Michalik wrote on this, this quote from Medizin ohne Menschlichkeit, Document des Nürnberger Ärzteprozesses, Editors Michalik und Milka from Frankfurt 1962, page 13. Of course one can do a simple calculation. Of about 90,000 doctors active in Germany at that time, around 350 committed medical crimes. That is still a considerable number, especially when one thinks of the enormity of the crimes, but in relation to the entire medical profession it was still only a fraction, about 1 in 300. Every third hundredth doctor a criminal? Well that was a proportion that was never before could have been found in the German medical profession. Why now? Michelich shows that behind the criminal leaders stood a large medical apparatus that had already step by step advanced to a considerable extent the transformation of patients into human raw material. The criminal doctors only had to take one more cynical leap in the direction in which they were already headed. What today goes on quietly without being seriously disturbed by anyone, torture research, genetic and prosthetic research, military biological and war pharmacology research, already has within it everything that will provide the tools for the medical fascism of tomorrow. The horrifying living experiments and notorious collections of skeletons in Nazi medicine will be, quote, nothing by comparison. Nothing by comparison. That is cynical one-upmanship. Yet it simply articulates the tendency of reality. In the area of cleverly thought-out cruelty, the 21st century has already begun. What will help against the master's helping profession of today and tomorrow? And several answers are conceivable. First, from a society with the will to live, and from its philosophy, to the extent that it captures the will to live in its time and concepts, must come an offensive that rehabilitates the idea of the good doctor and brings a helping at the source into battle against the universal, diffuse cynicism of modern medicine. What good help and what a real healer are, medicine by itself has never been able to define. A social order like ours furthers almost by necessity a medicine that in turn tends to further the system of sicknesses and of making people sick rather than life and good health. Second, only self-help helps against master's helpers. The only defence against false or questionable help is to have no need of it. Moreover, for a long time now, we have been able to observe how capitalist master's medicine attempts to bring self-help traditions and folk medicine under its domination. After centuries of defamation and rivalry, by absorbing them as part of orthodox medical reason, 
Quote, it's been scientifically proven. There really is something up in herbs. End quote. The interest of the institutionalised medical profession works with all possible means towards a state of affairs in which everything corporeal will be totally medicalised, from occupational medicine, sport medicine, sexual medicine, digestive medicine, nutritional medicine, fitness medicine, accident medicine, criminal medicine and war medicine, to the medicines covering the competency to supervise healthy and unhealthy breathing, walking, standing, learning and newspaper reading, to say nothing of pregnancy, birth, dying and other caprioles of human corporeality. The health system is heading towards a state of affairs in which the master's medical control of the somatic dimension will become totalitarian. A point can be imagined at which private bodily competencies will be expropriated completely. In the end, one will have to attend urological classes to learn how to piss correctly. The central question in the current medical cynical process is whether orthodox medicine will be able to destroy the lay helper movements that have arisen for numerous cultural reasons. Self-actualization, the woman's movement, ecology, rural communes, new religions, etc. This question runs parallel to the question of the intramedical chances of political tendencies in professional medicine, psychosomatic internal medicine, occupational medicine, gynaecology, psychiatry and so on. These are the professional medical disciplines that for logical reasons concerning their occupations should know best that everything they do runs the risk of harming more than helping. As long as another direction for helping, coming from life, freedom and consciousness, is not pursued. Third, in the last instance, only the conscious embodying of our fragility, our being sick, our mortality, can help against the medical splitting off of responsibility for our own bodily existence. I do not have to say how difficult that is, for the fear when it becomes great, makes us all the more inclined to repress our responsibility for the life and death of our own body, or to delegate it to doctors, not considering that even the most perfect conservation medicine, in the end, hands back to us the entire responsibility and unshareable pain in our most helpless moment. Those who recognise that the circle of alienation and flight must always finally close in one's own death must also be aware that it would be better to reverse towards life rather than anaesthetization, towards risk rather than security, toward embodiment rather than splitting. <laughs>